You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open God's Word and turn this morning to the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 40. And we will read this chapter in its entirety. It's good to know that Isaiah spoke these words in view of the impending exile of the people of God. Isaiah foresees that the exile will become a reality, and he also foresees beyond the exile the gracious work of God in restoring his people. So in advance, as it were, he brings to the people of God a word of comfort. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught 
and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Let's turn also now to the writings of the New Testament, to the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, to chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let us now turn to the text for the sermon of this morning. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, and continuing to verse 3 of chapter 2. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. 
And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are three well-known words that keep showing up in the New Testament. The words faith, hope, and love. You can pretty much count on it that when one of these words is found somewhere in the writings of the New Testament, one or both of the others will be nearby. Faith, hope, and love, together these words summarize what it is that God expects of us, his people. He calls us to faith. He calls us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to hope, to look forward with eager anticipation and confidence to the day of the return of our Lord Jesus. And he calls us also to love, a love that comes from, flows forth from, faith and hope. All of these virtues are obviously important for us as God's children. But the fascinating thing we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 13 is that of these three great Christian virtues, the greatest is love. Why would that be? Well, we can say that love is greater than faith and hope, primarily because love outlasts faith and love outlasts hope. Today, we live by faith. When Christ returns, brothers and sisters, then we no longer live by faith, but we live then by sight. Today, we live by hope. But when Christ returns and God's kingdom comes in its fullness and glory, then hope has become a reality. But even when faith becomes sight, and when hope becomes reality, then love will still be there. Because God's kingdom, when it comes in its power and glory and majesty in the day of our Lord Jesus, that kingdom congregation will be For all eternity, a kingdom of love. It will be a kingdom, we could say, soaked in the love of God. It will be a kingdom breathing the love of God's people for their God. And it will be a kingdom united by the love of God's people for one another. Well, since we are people of the future, we are kingdom people. Since we are already striving now in this age to live that life of the future kingdom, God says to us in his word this morning, My children, love each other deeply from the heart. And that then is our theme. God's people are called to love each other deeply from the heart. And we will consider three points. First of all, the power for love. Where do we get the power for love? And secondly, the implications for love. And thirdly, the growth of love. We are called to love each other deeply from the heart. And so we speak first about the source of this love, the power for this love. I don't have to tell you, congregation of our Lord, that there's a lot of talk about love in our world. Love is that infinite topic that people never stop talking about. Poets describe it, philosophers analyze it, music expresses it. And generally, most people in the world agree that love is a good thing. 
To love someone every understands, everyone understands is, is better than hating someone. To love your neighbor, everyone knows, is definitely better than to be egotistical. To really care about people around you, at work, at school, at home, everybody understands that's better than to be uncaring. And trying to understand all the people you live and work with, well, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that that's better than lashing out in anger and malice. And so everyone understands, everyone in the world virtually, except those who, whose consciences have become totally seared. But nearly everyone, we can say freely, in the church and outside of the church, understands that love is a good thing, that love is a desirable quality. And yet if people are honest, if we are honest, and if our neighbors outside the church are honest, they have to admit, and we have to admit too, that thinking about love and talking about love, singing about love, is actually a lot easier than loving. Actually loving people. Real people. People who can be so difficult. People who can be so profoundly different than we are ourselves. Well, we all know that's a very demanding thing to do. And if we are honest, we have to own up to the fact, too, that within our hearts, built right into us, as it were, there is something, something dark, something sinister that hinders the expression and the working out of this thing called love, which we all agree is a good thing. We have to admit that in our hearts there is something, quite frankly, that is the polar opposite of love. Hatred, being self-absorbed, pride, anger. What human being is free from such traits? So the question here this morning for us is when Peter calls us as God's beloved people to love one another, and, and not just to love one another, but to love one another deeply, he says, and to love one another from the heart, the question we have is how is that really possible? And the answer from the Apostle Peter in our text this morning is that we can learn to love properly. We can learn to love God properly. And we can learn to love one another as God's children properly only in as much as we are being spiritually transformed from the inside out. To love others, in the language of the Apostle Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 1, we need to be inwardly purified. We need to be purified of the sinful attitudes that work against love. And Peter writes about this spiritual transformation in the opening words of our text when he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, Peter is talking here, brothers and sisters, about the conversion experience of his readers. Peter's readers, unlike many of you, were not 10th generation Christians. They were not 20th generation Christians. Many of Peter, Peter's readers were Gentiles and Jews who only fairly recently had come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in verse 22, he's talking about their conversion experience, which for many of them... Unlike those, perhaps, who are nurtured in a covenantal environment, 
For many of these people, their conversion experience would have been a memorable one. And Peter writes about that conversion experience in terms of purification. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, the truth here is the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These readers of Peter have heard that gospel. Through God's grace, the gospel came to them, and by the power of God's grace, they gave their hearts to that gospel. They embraced it. They made it their own. They came under the power of that gospel. Peter says that they came to obey it. They purified themselves by obeying the truth. That means they they placed their lives under the saving power and the lordship of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And what was the result of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus? What was the result of putting themselves under his sovereign lordship? Well, Peter says, the answer is, you converts, you were purified. And what were they purified from? Well, they were purified from all those dark, sinister, evil forces that work against love. That love which everyone says is a good thing, but finds so difficult to practice because of the impurities of hatred and anger and jealousy and malice and all those other vices. Peter says, you have been purified from all of those wicked things through your conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see that love comes from conversion when Peter goes on to say in verse 22 still, he goes on to say about those who have purified themselves by obeying the truth, that they now have sincere love for their brothers. You have sincere love, love that's from the heart, love that's genuine, love that isn't just the front, a love that isn't just words, but also deeds, a consistent, sincere, steady love flowing from the inside out. That, says Peter, that is the result of your purification as you came to embrace the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ preached to you. And so you see, while everyone can, and while nearly everyone does talk about love and think about love, Peter is saying here this morning for our edification that it's only those who know the Lord Jesus Christ in his love, in his saving love, only they can genuinely practice love. Let me put it very bluntly. In terms of biblical definitions, only Christians can love. The world can talk about love, the world can aim at love, the world can approximate love, but in terms of the self-denying standard of love that is set forth for us in Holy Scripture, we must say that only those who are converted and who live under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ are able to practice that kind of love. Peter tells us more about the source of real love in verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Here, congregation of our Lord, we find that incredibly important biblical doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of rebirth, the doctrine of new life for those who are spiritually dead. The Bible teaches that we're all born in a state of depravity. To put it in different words, the Bible says that we're not normal. We're just not normal. There's something wrong with all of us when compared to 
the standard of God's creation. As our confession puts it, in the Belgian Confession, we have an hereditary disease which affects even infants in their mother's womb. And that hereditary disease is called original sin. Original sin means we're born as part of a guilty human race. And furthermore, it means that we're born as a depraved human race. And because of these things, we are selfish by nature. We're self-seeking. We're self-absorbed. These are characteristics that are common to fallen humanity. And they are the very things that hinder the outworking of that beautiful reality of love. And so what's needed for human beings, brothers and sisters, is not just some moral improvement, as people in the secular world believe. We don't need just some ethical education once in a while to help us to be good. We need something far greater than that, and we better understand it. We need nothing less than new life. We need regeneration. As even the Reformed Forum for Baptism says in the opening line, seeing that we are all born in a state of corruption, unless we are born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's right there in the Forum for Baptism. You hear it many times in a large congregation like your own. And so the Bible is emphatic that all of you need this inward spiritual transformation. And how does that inward spiritual transformation happen then? Well, it comes from God, obviously. God is the author of life. He's the author of regeneration. But Peter says that God does it through a certain means, which he calls a seed. Not a perishable seed, like the seed that gave rise to our natural life, the seed of a man and a woman. That's a perishable seed, and the life that it brings forth is perishable life. But Peter says God brings his redeemed children to birth through an imperishable seed which he describes further as the living and enduring Word of God. The Word of the Gospel, which Peter preached, which came to his readers, that very same Word which is preached to you. That Word, says Peter here, contains within itself the power of God, and that Word has the ability to bring forth among you new life. Life which can go beyond selfishness, beyond being self-absorbed. Life that can be life of love. And how can the Word of God do this miracle of bringing regeneration? Well, the answer is it's, it's because it's no ordinary word. You know, your, your words don't have the power to give life, but God's Word, says the Bible, is itself living. He's the God of life. And his word is life-giving. And furthermore, as Peter emphasizes, the word of God is enduring. God does not fade away. And neither does his word fade away. His words endure even beyond our present form of life under the heavens and on this earth. Peter fleshes out this point about the enduring nature of God's word with a quotation from Isaiah 40. As you find it there, set, set out in your Bibles, in quotation marks, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Isaiah emphasizes in chapter 40 the fleeting character of life in this present world, the fleeting character of human glory. 
Human glory is nothing less than vain glory. It's a glory that does not last. Life without grace, Isaiah would say, is perishable life. But because God's word of grace is an enduring word of grace, because that word of grace never ends being the word of grace, it will be to all eternity the word of grace. Therefore, the life that that word of grace creates is also enduring. The life of love as practiced among the people of God that creates a culture, that creates a a community, which in contrast to the passing, transitory nature of everything else in the world will last. It will endure. The life of the people of God, the life of love of the people of God is an enduring life because it has been brought into existence by the enduring Word of God. And I want you to notice with me this morning, brothers and sisters, that the Apostle Peter assumes in this passage that his readers have been born again. Notice that Peter does not bother his readers with questions like, have you been born again? And as has happened to me several times in my life when I reply, yes. But have you really been born again? And all you could say is, I have been born again. But Peter doesn't actually ask that question of his readers. He doesn't put them on the spot and cause them to doubt whether or not they have been born again. In fact, I put it to you this morning, nowhere in the whole Bible does the Bible encourage us to ask the question, are you born again? What does the Bible encourage us to ask? The Bible encourages us to ask instead, do you believe? This is the message of life. Do you believe that message? And when you do believe that message, then the Bible says about you that God has given you new life. You see, that's the kind of the biblical order of thought. That's the biblical logic of salvation, if I may put it that way. So the Bible compels us to answer the question Sunday after Sunday. In fact, every time we hear the Word of God in our homes, in our Bible class, in opening devotions, at a meeting, before catechism, during catechism, the Word of God is there and the question it compels us to answer is, do you believe this message of life? And as you believe that message, people of God, then do not doubt that you have been given new life. You may not know the hour and the day of your rebirth, even though we shouldn't make light of people who claim that they can know the hour of their rebirth. Perhaps they were among Peter's readers, those who had grown up in ignorance and sin, and at a particular moment encountered the message of life, and they can remember when everything changed for them. So that can happen. It's not the ordinary experience of people who are born and raised within a Christian community. For example, it would be very difficult to answer the question, when was the Apostle Peter born again? It's very difficult to answer that question. But even if you don't know the hour and the moment of your rebirth, what you do know is you believe. And because you believe, you may know that you have new life. And along with that new life, brothers and sisters, comes the capacity for true love. There's a tremendous connection made in the Bible between regeneration, rebirth, and The power to love. And that's what Peter wants you to know. 
that as those who have been granted regeneration, God has given you, all of you who believe, God has given you the capacity truly to love in the full biblical sense. Love that is sincere. Love that endures. Love that is a love of words and deeds. That kind of love. You have the capacity to feel and to practice because you have been born again by the living and enduring word of your God. Now, of course, the fact that you have the capacity to love doesn't mean that love is easy. Brotherly and sisterly love among the people of God, it is possible by the strength of God, it is possible because of a new life, but that love doesn't go on and on and on automatically without the involvement of your will, without your conscious commitment and volition. Instead, we're called by Peter here to work at love. It's an imperative. Love. Don't assume it will just happen, but think it through. Become sensitized again all over to the obligation to love and pray for the grace to do what God has called you to do. And you know the thing about love among the people of God is you don't get, you don't get to decide who to love. You know, that's a common misconception. You don't get to decide who you're going to love. Here you are today, congregation of the Lord. God in sovereign power and wisdom has formed you into a community of believers. And in the community of believers, you don't get to choose whom to love. You must love all. God gives you to each other and, and God says, love each other deeply from the heart without exception. And so we see then that love is something we have to work at. We've covered then pretty much so far verses 22 through 25 of chapter 1. We go on now to verse 1 of chapter 2 where Peter speaks about the implications of love. This is how he spells it out, the implications of love. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You know, that word get rid of is, is a word that has, has the connotation of putting off some clothing that has become dirty, very dirty. If you've been working hard in your yard or garden all day yesterday with the beautiful spring weather, you might have gotten dirty. And you come in and you, you may have had a shower and then you put on clean clothes. And that's the kind of thing Peter's talking about here. You have to get rid of that which is dirty. And what do you have to get rid of? Well, you have to get rid of a lot of ugly stuff. A lot of ugly stuff that hangs around sometimes in the Christian community too. Ugly stuff that lingers and tries to regain possession of the purified Christian heart. Bad attitudes. Sinful attitudes. Peter mentions a number of them. He mentions, first of all, malice. Get rid of malice. You know, malice is basically having ill will in your heart. Ill will towards someone. Ill will, Ill will toward anyone. In your family circle, in the church circle in the broader community. It could be that you have a lot of ill will in your heart. It could be that you just have a tiny bit of ill will in your heart. But Peter says, 
however much ill will is lingering in your Christian life, get rid of it all. Make no room, zero tolerance for ill will. And then Peter talks about deceit and hypocrisy. You know, these are the kind of things involved when you say nice things about people to their face, but then tear them up behind their back. That's being deceitful. That's not being straight with people. That's hiding things. It's being evasive. And Peter says in the community of God's people, there is no room for that kind of duplicity. Get rid of all deceit and hypocrisy. And then there's envy. Envy means wanting what someone else has. Jealousy means wanting to keep what is rightfully yours. But envy means wanting what someone else has that you don't have. Well, there's nothing that breaks down fellowship more than walking around with a bit of a grudge toward people because they have something you don't have. They have things. They have relationships. They have particular blessings that you crave but don't have. And you're envious because of them. And finally, Peter mentions slander of every kind. Basically, slander is any kind of talk that's disparaging towards other people in the body of Christ. Any kind of disparaging, negative talk which puts people down, which attacks their credibility, diminishes their status, the Apostle Peter says, get rid of all of it, not just some of it, not just on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, but on Sundays too, on every day, in every situation, get rid of that vicious sin of slander. Now, I don't know how you feel about this list of sins that Peter writes down here for our edification this morning. My impression is that when God's people hear a list of sins like this in verse 1, they tend not to get particularly worked up about it. They might get worked up about a different kind of list of sins. For example, if that list of sins included things like using illegal drugs or homosexual behavior or child abuse or stealing or fornication or public drunkenness. You know, we we read about those sins and such a list might elicit in our hearts a kind of dismay and disgust. But the question is, do we feel the same dismay and disgust when Peter talks here about things that are truly disgusting? Things like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. There's a, there's a new book that's been selling quite well by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. I think that's what it's entitled anyway. And it has a number of chapters about sins that in, 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 his, in his estimation have in one way or the other been given a certain degree of tolerance within the body of Christ. There's, there's intolerance for some sins, but then there is a degree of tolerance for others like the kind mentioned here. But you know, I would put it to you that in the, in the, in the Holy Scriptures, the kind of sins that Peter describes here in verse 1, they have a greater focus than do the more sensational kind of sins that we tend to react to with disgust and dismay. The Bible is extremely concerned about sins that undermine fellowship, sins that break down relationships, relational sins in the estimation of the apostles and prophets are sins that God abominates. And God says to us this morning, 
that we must make no room for them, but must get rid of them. We can get rid of them because we have been born again by the power of the living and enduring word of God. We, we can get rid of them because we've been purified by obeying the truth. You see, do not underestimate your capacity to live the Christian life. Do not imagine that you will be enslaved to such sins for the rest of your days. No. The Lord wants you to be optimistic about your Christian life, that you can grow, you can make progress, you can put away what is old, you can get rid of what is evil, and you can put on what is good. And so we come to our third point, the growth of love. We're talking now about verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. We all know that when babies are born, they have a craving for nourishment. They crave milk. God has built that craving into them because they need that milk to grow and flourish. Craving, the craving of babies is very, very strong. As parents know, maybe some of you experienced this last night when your young baby woke up in the middle of the night crying and acting as if he or she was starving, desperate for nourishment. Well, Peter says that those who have been born again through the, through the living word of God ought to display in their lives a strong craving for spiritual milk the milk of the Word of God. Now, Peter is not contrasting here, as Paul does sometimes on the letter to the Hebrews. He's not contrasting milk with meat. He's not thinking in those categories. He's just thinking in terms of the metaphor of milk for the nourishing power of the Word of God as a whole. And Peter says, your desire for the Word should be as intense as that of that little baby that may have woke you up last night at three o'clock, craving for milk. Something of that craving ought to have been present in your heart this morning as you you responded to the call to worship. And I want to notice with you this morning too that Peter talks about milk that is pure. Crave pure spiritual milk. If you feed your baby with formula, you you want to know precisely what's in that in that product. You want to be sure that it's pure, that it's free from all toxins, that there is no bacteria in there. You want your baby to have the best, pure spiritual or pure nourishment for your baby. Well, in the same way Peter is saying here, God's children who have been regenerated by the living and enduring word of God, they don't get their spiritual nourishment just anywhere. And I want to dwell on that for just a moment with you. God's children do not get their spiritual nourishment just anywhere. For example, you you don't just grab what you can from the latest Joel Osteen production. You don't just grab what you can from the latest book of Brian McLaren. You don't just grab what you can either from the last podcast of Rick Warren. No, you get spiritual nourishment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of which the reformers used to say that it is our mother. And I think there's good biblical basis for saying such a thing. John Calvin once said provocatively, if you will not have the church as your mother, then you may not have God as your father. And I think that also has good biblical basis. But Peter's point here is God's people crave, are to crave pure spiritual milk and they are to Receive that pure spiritual milk from the church of the living God to which he has entrusted 
the oracles of life. And let me emphasize just a bit more at this point. Church here is not just church in the broad sense, the church universal, if you will, but the church to which you belong. The church with public worship, the church with its fellowship of like-minded believers, the church with its structure and communion and confession and governance and leadership and sacraments, that church God has given to you to provide for you the spiritual milk which you need to grow up to salvation. Now, final question is, what is it that makes a baby keep coming back for more? Why do babies cry in the middle of the night? Well, because they know how good the milk really is. That's why. They want more because they know how good it is. And what then is it that keeps a believer coming back for more? For more of that pure spiritual milk of the word? Well, Peter tells us in verse 3, he says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've tasted it in the milk of the word. You've heard the truth, brothers and sisters. It's been preached to you many times. You have experienced the imperishable power of the Word of God. In this way, you have tasted the goodness of God Himself. The goodness of God as it's displayed for you in the preaching of the Gospel week after week, month after month, year after year. When you taste that goodness, it makes you long for more. And when you come back for more, God will bless that. He will bless it for nourishing the new life of regeneration that he has given to you. And as that life is nourished, love will be multiplied. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.